NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Hello, everyone, in the National Writing Project and guests of the National Writing Project Network. This is The Right Time, a special collaboration between the National Writing Project and Penguin Random House Books. I'm Brian Ripley-Crandall, director of the Connecticut Writing Project at Fairfield University, and today's show is extra special for me. I'm so honored to be here with Tanya Baker, director of national programs, William King, an ESL teacher in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and actor, model, activist turned author Gare Duane. This is, it's just remarkable to me today that we, that we have this crew. I love it. So Ta- Tanya, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm so super excited for today's program, Brian. Um, we are so excited to share with everybody Gare's new memoir and um, to once again have William host with us. It's great to see you again, William. Uh, many of us in the national, oh, sorry, they welcomed you and then didn't let you say hello. Many of us in the network are tremendous fans of the work at Fairfield Writing Project, um, uh, the Ubuntu Academy work, and um, all the work that you do with re- refugee youth. It's pretty amazing and timely that Gare Duane's new book, Walk Toward the Rising Sun, is debuting this fall. Yeah, it's actually special super, Tanya. I'm thrilled that we were able to uh, share this story with the National Writing Project Network. Uh, Gare Duane and I spent couple days ago really discussing where our stories kind of have intersected and overlapped over the years and I'm really kind of astonished to host them today you know some of our audience members may know that Gare Duane was in the movie I Heart Huckabees directed by David Russell in 2004 he played Stephen Nemeri the the coincidence alongside Jude Law Dustin Hoffman Lily Tomlin and others Um, Because of my work with the Sudanese Lost Boys in Louisville, Kentucky, I used to share that movie with my students, admiring Gare from afar. Um, Fast forward 10 years, I'm now a director in Connecticut, and a new movie comes out with Reese Witherspoon called The Good Lie. And I see that it's it's debuting in Greenwich, Connecticut, and I I bring a couple of my undergraduate students and my kids, and we go. And um, Gare wasn't there, but some of his uh, co-stars were there, like Arnold Osang. Um, and then I also um, saw that Emmanuel Jal, who's another Sudanese writer, musician, was also in the movie. And all these, all these coincidences kind of became a coincidence in my, my own life. And so, yeah, he played the coincidence in 2004, but he's also a role model for me and the work that I've done in the Sudanese refugee communities and Louisville and Syracuse and now in Connecticut. So I think it's miraculously coincidental that we are debuting his memoir on our show today. I'm very excited. <laughs> we are all so excited to meet you and hear about this work, Gare. Brian, thanks for weaving all those coincidences together so we have a backstory about this show. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce our audience to Gare Duane, who is a survi- survivor of the tragic exodus of an estimated 20,000 Sudanese children, uh, often referred to as the Lost Boys of Sudan. Uh, Gare has been appointed as a UN Goodwill Ambassador. Gare was born in the town of Ekobo, was caught up in Sudan's North-South Civil War and was forcefully recruited as a child soldier. At the age of 14, he managed to escape to neighboring Ethiopia and was eventually resettled to the United States from the Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya. 
In 2014, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees helped Gare reunite with his mother and other family members in Kenya's Kakuma refugee camp. Today, he is a writer, a model, and an actor. To learn more about Gare, his inspiring life story, and his constant work to help refugees around the world, visit garedwayne.com or at garedwayne on Twitter. Welcome, Gare. Yeah, welcome, Gare. And um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, William King to the National Writing Project audience once again. Um, early in my directorship at Fairfield University, I had a graduate student named William King who quickly became a colleague through the Connecticut Writing Project and um, totally royalty in my world, hence his t-shirts, right? Um, <laughs> he's a brother, he's a friend, he's a dreamer, he's a doer. So I knew he'd be the perfect person for this week's interview. Uh, William King is an educator from Bridgeport, Connecticut who has been working with inner city youth for over 16 years. He received a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville and a Master's of Arts in Teaching English to Speakers of Other Languages, TESOL, from Fairfield University. In addition to being an ESL teacher at Bassick High School and community advocate, William diversifies his teaching and learning capacity by leading several literacy labs each summer through the Connecticut Writing Project summer programs. He presents often at the National Writing Project and at the National Council of Teachers of English um, on supporting academic achievement achievement and promoting student voice in schools and in communities. William enjoys training, playing basketball, and a passion for collegiate and professional sports. He's a world traveler and aims to support and encourage students and colleagues to think outside of the box, to be men and women for others, and to be agents for educational equity. Welcome to the show, William and Gare. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Gare, it's a pleasure. Brian, it's always a pleasure. Tanya, it's a pleasure. Nice to see you, William. Uh, it's so great to have you back. I have told everybody that the surprise joy of my summer has been the right time. And it gets better all the time. And we say this almost every week. But Brian, seriously, this might be the best episode of the right time yet. Mm. I am looking forward to learning more about Gare's memoir and learning alongside William, who's always asked insightful and important questions. William and Gareth, thank you for participating on our show. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you so much, uh, yeah, Tanya and, and Brian. Uh, I'm very happy to be, to be here with you guys. Good. We're going to hand the show over to Will now. He's going to start us off with a three-minute writing prompt for the National Writing Project audience. And after he reads the question, we are going to take some time to write and then maybe do a little bit of sharing before the interview starts. You ready, Will? I am ready. All right, you're the king. Okay, audience. Um, reflection on your own life. What items, objects, people, and or things bring you hope? Is one more important than the other? What does it or do they mean to you and why? Take three minutes and just draw something for us.
one more minute. Get it a good place to trail off. Yeah, so I, I cheated because I, I knew the prompt early on. And, and Gear doesn't know I have this, but I'm bringing this out. Gear, do you know what this is? Does this look like? Ah, that looked like my cow. Yeah. With the right? big horn. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I actually, knowing the prompt, I was thinking about an object that gives me hope that's in my house. And that was made by a man named uh, Macron Bolso in Syracuse, New York. Okay. And a woman at Syracuse University named Felicia McMahon, um, St. Vincent Church and the Sudanese community. We got together every Sunday for two years to sculpt mm -hmm. cows. And the Sudanese men would share stories and talk about their lives and talk about their weeks and their work. Then we would fire them up and paint them and then we'd fire them again. And we sold those cows um, to help raise money for books for the, the guys that go to community college or to supplement some of their learning. Oh, wow. um, and so I, um, I have several of the cows in my house from my time in Syracuse. And one of the reasons why it's always been an object for hope for me is because the Sudanese story is always so powerful when we hear it, but also because the Sudanese community never seems to give up and they, they bond together um, to make the American dream become possible. And um, we're going to go off the screen um, and so that the two of you can talk to each other about your story of relocation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you bring the cows along, you know, and um, Tanya and I will be back in about 30, 35 minutes. And we hope you have a really good interview. All oh, right. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. That's the one I'll, I'll bring you a cow next time. I okay. see. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Mr. King. How are you? Man, this 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 is the moment for me right here. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I have to start by telling you, you know, as a as a teacher, but also as a as a man, I want to first tell you thank you. Um, thank you for making yourself available in person, well, virtually, but also in spirit, right? Because your story travels. Um, and it it impacts generations of people who may not even know you but know the land of what you speak or know the spirit of what you're talking about and as a, as a teacher who works with kids it's very difficult for me at times because i don't have the concrete experience that they have and I'm, I'm trying deeply to make that connection. I'm trying to, to take that extra step. But having your presence here and, and having this experience is going to give me um, a, a little bit more light when I see a child who's struggling and who has a story that I will never know about. I will never be able to experience. So I want to say thank you. And I also want to say at any time that the question that I ask is um, 
makes you feel like you want to go further, go with it. Um, Brian and Tanya will tell us uh, when, you know, when time is shortening. But for me, I don't need to ask you 8,000 questions for me to get really what I want. And at the same time, because the book is so great, uh, I think people will be interested and eager to read about your story. But I think they will care more about this interview. Um, <laughs> yeah, so with that, I, I'm, I'm here as a listener, but also as an admirer um, and also as a, a learner. Right. I want to learn from what you say. And so feel free, however you want to um, approach. The well, first, well, first, man, I'd like to thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, just to be here, too, in your prison is, is something that I appreciate even the most because of the work that you are doing, uplifting uh, students and, and all of us being a student at some point, uh, whether high school or, or college. Yeah. And I think uh, to have a conversation with you right now, it kind of, you know, affirm the fact that we graduated and then we are in a bigger world where we can really <laughs> share stories. Right, right, right. Whether we're seeing each other or we're not seeing each other, it right. doesn't make a difference. This, 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 this just interaction between you and I is, is, is making you different. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about that. Okay. That feels good. Because um, being, you know, Brian, I've, I've met some folks that have written, have written novels and, um, I always have to ask myself, it must take a tremendous amount of courage to write your life, you know, because a lot of that is private. A lot of that is, you know, information you're not really trying to share because you don't know how the world will take it. Um, so this, this experience for me is just reassuring how much bravery and courage that I am capable of having based on what you've been able to do. So I, you know, let's, let's see, let's see. Um, ready? Yes, no problem. I'm um, so Ger, it, did I pronounce that right, Ger? Ger, yes, my brother, you did. Okay. Um, Walk Towards the Rising Sun is written as a memoir that shares the story of growing up among the newer people before war and conflict um, entered Sudan. Perhaps you might give your audience context, background about your country. Um, tell us about Sudan and your favorite memories that you have. Then perhaps you can share with us how your childhood was interrupted from the war. Okay, well, thank you. That's, that's a good question. Yes, uh, walk to the rising sun. It's a memoir that I'm very happy to tell the world about because mm -hmm. it is it is a story that lived with me and almost was taking over my other part of life because even when I find courage to stay away from that, it's always something that brings it back. And then today, here I am, we have a memoir that we can really share uh, what it is has been haunting me and how I find the strength mm -hmm. and, and the courage and, and the help from all types of people from all walks of life. So I'm very happy, man, and proud, proud, of, proud of this piece of work myself. So I'm glad that uh, you, 
you came across it and now we can have a conversation. So to brief you about my country, yes, Sudan, which was uh, a place where I was given birth. Uh, and then, um, and Sudan used to be one of the largest country in Africa. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and we were a country that was colonized by British, just to give you a brief background. And then uh, we gained our independence from, uh, from Egypt in 1956. But way before 1956, in 1955, we, we also were going through a conflict. We are fighting because the people from the North and the people from the South are completely different people culturally. And, uh, and, and we felt like we, we need to govern ourselves as Southern Sudanese people. So that's how my life, or maybe my mother and my father's lives were being interrupted by the war. And then, then I just came along later on as, uh, as the war was raging all across Sudan, uh, which is the second civil war that really affected my life. It happened in 1983, and mm -hmm. I was still a small boy back then. So that's how uh, my life was interrupted uh, by by the Civil War, but this book I'm writing about growing up, yes, in the Nuer area, you know, in the greater Upper Nile, which is where our region is, because there's three regions in South Sudan, and mm -hmm. then our region is called, you know, Greater Jungle, or Greater Upper Nile, excuse me. So that's where Nuer people live. Maybe, maybe later you can tell me a little bit about how the names came about for, to represent the Nile um, and you know, you don't have to tell me now, but I, I will be interested later on to kind of hear no problem. the story, but, um, so me, I wear many hats as a classroom educator. Yes. And one of them is helping to raise the children who come to me to learn, especially young men. And at a young age, you had to prove your manhood. Um, as initiated by the war. Can you discuss some of the pressures that were placed on you as a young man in Sudan? Yes. I think the entire country was initiated by civil war, not only my life alone. I just happened to be among mm -hmm. my people. And we, I guess we all were initiated by civil war of initiation have a meaning, you know. Yes, uh, as a young person, you know, there's some pressure that I, I have experienced, but where I come from, everybody play a role. Whether you're, you're a young boy, you're a young girl, you're, you're, you're a mother, you're a husband, all of us play roles. And my life revolves around raising cattle. So my small responsibility that was placed on my on me was to either look after my younger siblings and also, you know, to look after my cow, which is, you can see cow is really a sacred thing in my culture. Mm -hmm. So those were my responsibility and I enjoyed them very much, you know, and, uh, and, and enjoy taking care of my own siblings, you know, to help my mother around because I was the only boy that was left uh, when the Civil War really broke out, my older brothers, they, they already joined uh, 
the rebel groups called SPLA, Sudan People's Liberation Army. Mm-hmm. So I became a guy that had to take some of the responsibility from the elder, elder brothers that was not around. Right. Yeah. I sensed, I, and I sense this passion for your two siblings, the younger ones. Yes. You know, at such a young age that you were. And I said, listen, man, this man, you know, he's learning critical, um, critical skills and just compassion for family. You know, and and how that transfers into purpose and your you know your your life's purpose, um, which which was key for me when I read that. I was just like, this is an important lesson. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, uh, my younger brother. They even here in the United States. They came here two three years ago now. Mm-hmm. So yes. They they you say um, they're in their twenties, right, or early thirties? Yeah, in their thirties. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. The last born is is twenty nine years old. And uh, the second to him is, is 34, which is both the twin guy. Right. So I'm enjoying having this guy here in the stateside after 27, 28 years of being here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, so many of young people that I work, uh, they've immigrated. Yes. Um, horrible circumstances or been granted refugee status as a result of global conflicts, famine, poverty, um, civil unrest. I'm asking this question for them, right? What was the refugee camp like for you? Um, how did you maintain your hope while you were there? And, and I wanna preface by, by saying that my entire career depends on hope. Yes. Just curious, you know, like, how did you maintain your hope? What was the refugee camp like for you? Um, well, well okay. hey, Williams, uh, yeah, refugee camps for me was, was a rough place. It's one of the roughest places that uh, I've ever lived. And then, uh, and it's, it's an experience that I would not wish anyone to really uh, be displaced by civil war so that they can go and live in refugee camps. Because refugee camps are, is a place where it's so dep- very depressing in a sense where if you're a young person, there's no facility where you're going to try to learn your ABC or any things in that nature, especially in the 90s, because there was a lot of civil war happening in the entire East Africa. You know, Rwanda was going through the war, Zaire was going through the war, and also Ethiopia just went through another war at the time, and then Sudan, we've been at the war for so long. So refugees in that region were just streaming from everywhere, from every country. So living in those refugee camps, and before I come to the United States, yeah, I didn't have any, I only have hopes, just like you say, mm-hmm. you know, I only have hopes uh, living in refugee camp uh, because we get up and then we are doing nothing. But as a young person, sometimes you want to get you want to get engaged with things, activities. The only most productive thing that I did in the in the refugee camp is probably playing a lot of soccer. They call it football over there, and I used to just crack off feet, you know, bare feet, kicking ball when 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 the sun went down a little bit because it's a very hot 
odd place, you know. It can be like over 120 degrees, you know. You can, you can imagine how hot it is. <laughs> and also, you know, yeah. And what can make refugees uh, can become a difficult place is, is the fact that it's not enough. It's enough food. So, and when the food is not enough, you know, people have frustration. Mm-hmm. So there's violence. There's always fights. Mm-hmm. Uh, lack of insecurity really happened in refugee camps. So they're not just a place that are being well protected and people that are safe. That's why everybody live with their own clans. Your security comes from your own people. So we, I, I maintain that way. Maybe I live in four different refugee camps in East Africa, and mm-hmm. I never done anything different other than just having hope. Yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm seeing and 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 I'm seeing the the modern day they're not modern but I'm seeing the equivalent in some neighborhoods in yes. the United states and how you mentioning about your clan pretty much provides your security because you are insecure and your insecurity comes from the lack of resources right yes. so and this is this is a product of our environment, um, even now. You know, here where I live in Bridgeport, and I'm sure yes, yes. the cities and places throughout the country, um, it's that direct parallel. Right? Sudan, um, United States, and black children. Right. Like, so it's definitely it's definitely a topic. For me as an educator, you know, I have to deal with the struggle and I always remind my students, look, you may speak a different language, you may have, you may have traveled different lands, but you are the same people. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Don't ever forget that. Um, You know, know, funny enough that you mentioned, you know, Bridgeport and and how it's, it's known for violence. Actually, when I first went to Bridgeport, even some some of my friends they like, why are you going to Bridge, Bridgeport? Is a place where there's a lot of grind, crimes. I was like, only if you know where I come from. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not turning down this scholarship. I'm going to start I'm my new school. <laughs> Bridgeport. <laughs> I'm going to school. Yeah. 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 Uh, and you're right, you know, those kind of things, they really happen. So I can see there's a, there's, a, there's a correlation here in the sense of where I come from, from the places that I went to school in the United States. Mm-hmm. Even LA Southwest College in Southern California, I used to live in Crenshaw and Inglewood. Mm-hmm. And I've seen violence everywhere. And as much as I see violence and people sometimes don't want to go places, it being something that being part of my life where there's danger, I, sometimes I don't protect myself, but I can be vigilant. Right. And I'll walk through neighborhood where you're not supposed to be walking there to a point I'm being known by some of these guys that really create the violence. And then they, they thought I was a nice guy. Right. So I never have any problem. The same thing when I came to Bridgeport, I did the same thing. So mm-hmm. all these places, they say, you, you student have to stay here, student athletes stay here, don't go here. Man, I'm not that, I don't stay in one. If I show up, I show up. You show up. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to show in places in Bridgeport to a point even I have to come and tell all my, my teammates, like, hey, man, I went to this neighborhood, man. There's a lot of black people here and there. Mm-hmm. People are cool, man. It is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And that's, yeah, that's how we have to keep yeah. it. <laughs> um, 
Well, one of the greatest strengths in Walk Towards the Rising Sun are the chapters where you discuss being an African-born refugee, right? Background, adolescent, trying to make sense of American schools, which, girl, this is critical. Um, tell us about your transition to the United States and the schools that you attended. Yes, well, my transition in, in, in America and in American high schools, because I went to more than one high school. <laughs> and I, as much as I went to more than one college. So my transition was, was quite uh, something that I was in absolute amazement of everything. New people, new faces, new language to grab or learn as fast as possible. So I just kept asking myself, how the hell I'm going to survive and navigate in this society if I can't communicate this English language that communicate the whole world, mm -hmm. you see? And then uh, that was the thing for me uh, that I, I got involved in, in learning and, uh, and uh, learning whatever I can and, and also what helped me the most is when I found basketball and I pour my happiness, my frustrations into it. You know, I think that's how I really overcome uh, some of these uh, obstacles, in my opinion. Not that all the obstacles are under um, 0% now, no. Yeah, so I was the obstacle. <laughs> I don't know. That makes sense. Did I answer your question or not? I'm not sure, but yes. My question, I mean, it started with survival, right? Like, yes, you must understand and know the language of the land. Yes. And this kind of goes to my question later, but I think the biggest or at least one of the most important things about your story is travel, right? Like this exposure to the world, both its ugliest sides and its most beautiful sides. That's true. Um, and so, I mean, we're going to get to that later, but I, I, I agree with you. And, you know, your, your response is perfect. Um, now you. this, okay, so now this part of questioning is, is very exciting as well because you're like famous, bro. Like, <laughs> you think so? Yeah, like you do things and you make and you make moves on a on a greater stage. Oh, famous people are not free, man. You see, no. I'm very free. <laughs> right, 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 right. I got you. I got you. Um, so here you are with two movies, uh, uh, career and modeling, and you've written your first book. Uh, without yes. a doubt, the National Writing Project audience will want to know about your writing, um, the process of it. How did Walk Towards the Rising Sun come about? The origin. Um, was it hard to capture so many of your moments using a pen and paper? Yes, yes. Well, that's a good question. You know, uh, where walk to the rising sun was an idea, an idea that almost made me sleepless throughout mm -hmm. my whole life, you know, because I'm carrying it with me mm -hmm. all the time. And then uh, I can remember, you know, uh, when I was in college, I think it's my last year at University of Bridgeport. And then uh, one of my professors asked me if I can write my autobiography. And then I would give you the grade for the rest of the semester. I didn't know how big a 
how big of a challenge it was. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I went in and then I was writing, writing and telling them my, my life story. And this was about 2000, 2003, I believe. And then uh, from there, and uh, I turned it to him. I turned it in and then he loved it. Mm-hmm. Man, guess what? This summer, I call him, my old professor. I was like, professor, I'm almost becoming a, an author. It's like, are you serious? It's like, I was like, yes. It's like, well, I should have told you a long time ago. The paper that you have written 15 years ago, I still have it. And I should have told you that that was your starting point of being an author. Mm. I was like, wow. You still hold that one and while you, you're 90 years old? <laughs> and you still remember? Like, yes, I remember everything. So Walk Through the Rising Sun is a, is a book that I always wanted to wanted to share my life story, especially with the newer generation, because I really find new generation uh, are very smart people and uh, are very brave, and they have a strength that no one really have. Yeah. Also, they have fresh eyes of seeing things, and then uh, and when all the pieces really come together, my agent he really sh- shot this proposal, and it makes sense to my publishers and then man all the pieces come together it was like you know the help that i've been asking for the universe just gave it to me and and here we are today we're talking about a book so i'm very grateful man being in america and uh, i have all the opportunity a man can ask for and and i think it's i think it's so strong that you mentioned carrying this idea you know because at least for me, when I read books or, or I meet authors, my first impression is like, you must have gotten this sort of magic, um, this sort of magic purpose and crafted it overnight. And not everybody can do this, but I, I sometimes need to be reminded just what you said is that these ideas are carried for years. And your professor, he put that seed and said, listen, write this down. And that all, that's all it took for you. And, and I feel like maybe at that time you didn't know that that seed was being planted. No idea. I have no <laughs> yeah. idea. It's mesmerizing. Until, yeah, until like I'm catching myself now, even as you can see, I'm very nervous, you know, and then writing a book, it made me nervous. Making a movie make me nervous. Coming to a different country that is other than my country make me nervous. So some people will say, oh, Gary, you're brave. No, I'm not that brave <laughs> and I'm not that strong. <laughs> I just find places to go and then I'll be like, all right, I can make this commitment. And that can keep me going. So this commitment, yeah. yeah. But the help that I get from, from people is what makes my life better, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree with you. Need that community, you're yes. Need that community. <laughs> um, so your chapters and and your your personality is extremely brave in them. Uh, you discuss post traumatic stress disorder, especially in your relation to childhood experiences, your early teens, and transitioning to the United States. Um, many of us who teach in high poverty areas of the U.S. 
recognize PS, <clears throat> sorry, PTSD in our own students. How has the revelation of PTSD in your own life help you heal and help you grow? You know, I, when I came to the state, I was happy that I'm going to start my new life. It doesn't matter what it takes. Build it brick by brick, I would do it. Mm-hmm. It was an opportunity that I'm happy about. But I wasn't sure, you know, about uh, these nightmares that always come at me. And I can remember when I was in high school, in the summer of 1995, I believe, no, 96, we were playing basketball. AAU basketball where, you know, when AAU basketball we go, pretty much we go around the country and play, you know. We play in the Midwest. So I went to like, we went to Columbus in Ohio and we stay in dormitory and sometimes, you know, small motels with your teammate and, you know, the, you know, the environment of playing the sports. And so I can remember when I was dreaming and my teammate, they didn't know my, 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 that side of my life at all. They just see me as a guy who just loved to play basketball, loved to play hard. And that's, that's what they know about me. And then back home, you know, so the post-traumatic stress disorder start to, it's always coming at me, you know, even when I was in refugee camp, but I just didn't know what it is. I'm always dreaming, sweating, crying, screaming, jumping up. And then that particular AAU game, man, I woke up all my teammates and everybody was, was in shock, you know? I'm sweating and then I crack my knee from the table because I'm running. I felt like <laughs> I was being attacked, you know, <laughs> from one of those attacks that I have experienced in the past. And I was so terrified. And then that's how I came to understand, oh man, I have post-traumatic stress disorder for all these years. And so when I had my opportunity to go to University of Bridgeport and then I crossed paths with this professor mm-hmm. who really taught, who became like my psychology uh, professor and then uh, and that's how I spent a lot of time with him by then you know it's 2003 so you can only imagine what I have put up with <laughs> through high school to college to junior college and then now at the University of Bridgeport not being able to identify it. Not, not identify it you know <laughs> but again the only thing that really helped me was playing basketball physical basketball you know being in a gym you know it gave me the ground to really uh, to build my life, you know, and be successful playing basketball, even though I didn't go further than that, you know. If I didn't find a sport, I don't think I would be sitting across from you talking to you mm. because many of my guys that came to the state with me too, when we were all young, most of them lost their way here. So it's very funny enough when I'm really doing a movie and then I have to revisit these memories in the the sense that I can really bring that character out of the person, out of the life that, you know, that mirror my own life. So most of our guys, you know, they even end up going back to refugee camps because they're being displaced, or they're being uh, deported here Mm -hmm. because 
they they deal with the post-traumatic stress disorder in the worst way where they didn't really find another activities to keep them engaged in my opinion that's deep yeah yeah and uh and me hearing this from you and uh the, the children that you try to uplift in this area yes i think post-traumatic stress disorder is really a big deal and also mental illness is another things that need to be addressed even more especially when people come from different part of the world to come to the united states and then they wanted to reset it themselves those we should have program that really help refugees to to integrate themselves in a proper way and they, the way we did it in the 90s was not good enough because that's the reason we find a lot of guys you know they lost their way they are in prisons they commit murders they commit crimes that goes against the law Mm-hmm. And if, when you're in somebody else's country, there's things that you don't break. Law is one of them. You have to keep away from that. So our way was not the best way. So. And, you know, you just give me an idea that when you mention that, <clears throat> because right now the schools are opening up, but it, it's going to look nothing like it's ever looked um, in terms of, how many bodies are in the building, Yes. what the classroom is going to look like. But that is an adjustment to a health crisis, right? Virus, COVID-19. Yes. But the other aspect of it that educators have to find out how to deal with is the, the mental strain of having your education threatened by an unknown source, right? Because, you know, health is, viruses don't have laws. They don't, um, they don't discriminate. <laughs> There's no. No bars where they cannot penetrate. So this idea of it, if they're having a mental stress on people, teachers, students, families, is, yes. and, and me and, and, and educators have to find out when we are teaching, how do we teach that brain? Because the brain that we had back in March is a different brain than we have now. Um, yes. So it's interesting that you mentioned the need for, for mental health care reform, especially as early as eight, nine, ten-year-olds, five-year-olds, yes. all the way up through the high school. Yes. Um, and that, that's something that our society will need to attack aggressively. Um, it's 14 hours. That's true. Absolutely. I totally agree. You know, so. totally agree. And then, um, I mean, mine is a very beautiful things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a beautiful thing. Where bad and good memory can really stay there. You know, but how do you go about, you know, focusing? on good memories, beautiful memories that can really <laughs> help you propel yourself, you know, and to prosper in a land like, like this. So I, that's the reason I was, I was thinking about our mental, mental illness is a serious thing. And it's really happened to all of us. It doesn't matter if you come from a background where civil war uh, had torn your life apart or not. You know, people, I know people even in fashion industry that lost their mind. Mm. You know, I know people actually even in Hollywood 
that make movies that lose their mind. Mm. And, uh, and that can happen to any of us at any age, in my opinion. So I, I pray that, you know, this, this, this need to be put to consideration, and especially for educators like you guys who have access to these students and then you guys are changing their lives, you know. Sorry if I'm going. Sometimes I get possessed, man. Uh, you're good. We we had to come back on because we have a time show. Oh, okay. And I think Mr. King's Mr. Will King's last question because it's a good question. I think for all of us who are gonna are gonna read your book because the book comes out this fall. Um, you know the question that he wrote down. I'm just gonna read it since it's right here in front of me. Okay. What do, what do you what do you hope the National Writing Project audience, teachers, students, the nation? What do you hope um, everyone will learn? from reading your life's experience and your memoir? What do you, what do you, what's the big takeaway you want all of us to have? Well, you know, Brian, well, naturally, I would want people to take what really resonates with them. You know, yeah. I think it's very, very important because uh, I want to know uh, people, I want people to know that I'm just like them. Yeah. Yes, I'm just like them, and uh, I just had a different start in life, and uh, and if and if I didn't have a faith, and then I would not be trying to achieve things uh, that make sense in my life or that make sense for society in whole, you know, and. Uh, yeah. It's not much that I can really convince a person to check out of the books because it's a lot of chapters. I open up my heart to the entire world and I can only hope that, you know, hey, take whatever resonates with you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, we're fortunate because we got to see uh, an advanced copy. Actually, we got to see the Word document even before it was in, in book form. So ah, go <laughs> forward. You deceived me. You didn't tell me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to, we got to I didn't share it with nobody. Yeah, I promise. Uh, and I think I'm very thankful to Penguin Random House for uh, for finding me to because they've been they've been asking me to vet this book for a long time. Wow. And I can't wait for it to be in hard copy. And uh, I already I already like put in the first 25 copy orders for Mr. King's uh, ESL classroom this fall, of which we need you to come and be a special. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I owe you a meal, man. At least 25 uh, copies, that's a lot. We'll cook, we'll, we'll cook out, that yeah. could have been the most that I have to get. <laughs> <laughs> if you just bring yourself, uh, I'm fine. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, okay, funny. man. Don't say that to Sudanese guy. You know, we show up in thousands. <laughs> yeah. We're going to exhaust your pocket. <laughs> They show up. I like. I remember when I was teaching a, a Panther, William Panther, to drive. I through the Kentucky refugee missions. They asked me to. You know, I was a, a mentor to one. But that is true. It's showing up in the thousands. Like I started with one, and next thing I knew, I was teaching the entire the entire community of Louisville how to drive and how to cook and how yeah. to write classes and how to write poetry. And <laughs> Mr. King, I think we got one more question for you to leave our audience to write about in the future when this book is in their hand? Okay, so I'm gonna read this. Can you guys hear me good? Yeah. 
volume up more. Um, okay. So, <clears throat> and this question, I think Brian gets at the core of what we've been doing for, for years. Um, what local responsibility do we have to global stories? Should memoirs like Gerdwing's be taught in our schools? Why? How does such writing make all of us more human? Mm -hmm. And that's what I have for us. No, that's it. That's, that's going to be something. Well, that's something you and I have been writing about with Jessica Baldazon for some time. Yeah, yeah. We've been thinking about these issues for years. And, and I can say, Gary Duane, that our work becomes so much easier um, because individuals like you are willing to share and write your story that we can use to teach not only kids, Will and I and Tanya, we work a lot with teachers. And I, and I can tell you that your memoir, when it's in the hands of teachers, is going to incite many conversations in multiple communities across many schools. And so on behalf of the Connecticut Writing Project, on behalf of the Sudanese men and women that I've been fortunate to work with, on behalf of all the refugee background youth that um, I've been able to mentor, um, I just thank you for, for being brave and offering your intellectual leadership to go with your artistry as an actor and model too. And um, I do look forward to meeting you in person. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a great day when that happens. So. Well, Brian, thank you so much. And, and Tanya, for putting together this, uh, this event. Thank you, you guys. And, and we'll hope to see you soon, man. Absolutely. Both of you guys. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. The story is compelling. And it, it resonates. It resonates. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, everybody. I... Um, I, from the moment William started talking to you, I was on the edge of my seat. Um, I think this idea that stories show us who we could be is really important. And like William's saying, this showed me how brave I could be. And I feel like the whole interview was showing us all that, that it doesn't, being brave doesn't mean not being scared. It means... Mm -hmm. Showing up, as you said, Gare, showing up with commitment in the face of bravery and recognizing uh, the people in your community who um, lend you a hand and then extending a hand yourself and uh, your presence in the world and your uh, writing this book and then you're showing up to share it with us today is all of those things. And we're so thankful. Thank you, thank you, Ms. Baker. Actually, you know, this, this, this book is the only thing that I think I can really offer, if there's anything. When I first left Sudan, walking from Sudan to Ethiopia, Ethiopia to Kenya, it never a day in my life that I thought all this walking, that's something that someone, when I teach someone about me walking long distance, it will make sense to someone, no. So, you know. And yet here we I, are. I really believe everything is possible, here we are. And, uh, and we are all doing the same work because we wanted to uplift our society. We wanted to uplift our society to young people. And this is the only thing that I can really offer after all these years, you know, as, as, as a father myself. Mm. I feel like that's a little bit like putting a whole treasure chest of gold in somebody's lap and saying, that's all I have. <laughs> <laughs> if it is something, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> it's 
Beautiful. I'm happy that you guys embraced this. So thanks. Wow. You guys are doing fantastic work. Before, yeah. before we say goodbye, it's always my job having thanked you, Gare, and being so thankful um, to thank you also, William, for representing the network, for the amazing work you do with young people, and for being such a lovely reader and thinker and host for our show today. Mm -hmm. And to thank our listening audience, if you don't know the National Writing Project, you can see why you'd want to. So please follow us on Facebook, join our Facebook community, follow us on Twitter, or go to nwd.org. Sign up for our newsletter so you never miss another right time because these conversations are amazing. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio.